Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Did somebody page a doctor? Good thing the Rock Doctors Clinic is open for business. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week's patient has more than a bad case of loving you. And speaking of doctors, Dre's new album is up for review. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, later in the show, I have a Desert Island jukebox pick. I'd gotten an email from a listener who wanted to give her boyfriend a special 30th birthday present, asked me for some tunes from 1985. I know you're the king of the mixtapes, but I actually found an 85 mixtape I had made, and I picked a song from it. That'll be later on, but first we've got some music news. That is Straight Outta Compton, the title track of N.W.A.'s debut album in 1988. Also the title, Greg, of this new biopic, Straight Outta Compton, which did, as Variety would say, boffo box office business in its opening weekend. Debuted as the number one film in the U.S. and Canada, raking in $56.1 million. The biggest August opening ever for an R-rated film and the number one musical biopic instantly. Now, you know, you and I do these Sound Opinions movie nights, great films about music, but the biopic genre, I think in particular, is not great in rock and roll. You know, you, slim, yeah. You know, Hollywood has a way of taking out the danger and excitement of great musical acts. You think of what they did to Buddy Holly or Richie Valens. And I thought, I saw a press screening and I wrote a review of Straight Outta Compton, I thought this was a VH1 kind of TV movie of the week uh, level story uh, about NW. There are a lot of, uh, you know, exciting uh, things about that music. Uh, You know, Ice Cube's famous diatribe against the police in Los Angeles is as massive a track, uh, politically speaking, as hip-hop has ever produced. And the way that it predicted the violence that erupted in the streets after the Rodney King verdict, essential listening. But the first album, and even more so the second album, which which gets very short shrift in the film, is full of some very troublesome misogyny. And it wasn't only confined to the records, N.W.A.'s attitude toward women. Yes, one of the female victims of this band, Jim, a woman named Dee Barnes, who was a journalist working for a Fox TV show called Pump It Up About Hip Hop, did a documentary 
on the band that was not well received. Uh, Dr. Dre then physically beat her up. There was a court case. They they settled out of court. Uh, she was one of several women who suffered at the hands of this band, physical violence. And, and she wrote a brief piece about it for Gawker in which she said, like many of the women that knew and worked with N.W.A., I found myself a casualty of Straight Outta Compton's revisionist history. And revisionist it is, Greg. You know, their legacy of treatment toward women is exceedingly troublesome. The movie glosses over that, doesn't address it, although it has all sorts of time for other things. You know, it's a a two-and-a-half-hour movie, and it was cut down from three-and-a-half hours. I don't think it works as journalism. It doesn't work as biography. It is, uh, you know, a Hollywood gloss-over job of a troubling subject that really deserved to have the truth spoken about it. Is it rolling, Bob? To be alone with you Just you and me Now won't you tell me the truth Ain't that the way it ought to be To hold each other tight That is Bob Dylan with a track called To Be Alone With You from the Nashville Skyline record. At the start of that track, Dylan says, Is it rolling, Bob? And he's referring to his producer, Bob Johnston. Bob Johnston died August 14th at his home in Tennessee at the age of 83. His work with Dylan was impeccable. He teamed up with Dylan on the Highway 61 Revisited record and then all of Blonde on Blonde, where he persuaded Dylan to come to Nashville and and record what would become one of his greatest albums. Mm. Johnston was handpicked by John Hammond to work with some of the greats at Columbia Records in the 60s. He was a young producer slash engineer who understood what these artists were about, most notably with uh, somebody like Johnny Cash. Cash had uh, a lifelong dream of recording a live album in a prison, which the Columbia executives at the time thought was absolutely nuts. You, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bob Johnson was the guy who paved the way for, for Cash to do that, and he was able to record the At Folsom Prison and At San Quentin albums, which were really the cornerstones of his career. He also worked with Leonard Cohen on several albums. He worked with uh, Simon and Garfunkel on, on uh, albums like Sounds of Silence. Another great producer from that time also died recently, Billy Sherrill, dead at the age of 78 on August 4th. Sherrill was most noted, uh, Jim, for uh, bringing that countrypolitan sound into honky-tonk. He sort of sophisticated it up. You know, country purists didn't like it uh, very much, but the records he produced have stood the test of time, particularly with Tammy Wynette and George Jones, which I I think is kind of like the the Jay-Z and Beyonce of the day. They were talking to each other in these records. You know, Wynette had songs like Stand By Your Man, which some viewed as enabling, but she also wrote, and she, she also sang I Don't Want to Play House mm. and D-I-V-O-R-C-E. You know, Jones, in response, uh, produced some of his great tracks like The Grand Tour, The Door, He Stopped Loving Her Today. Uh, Cheryl was there to document it all on some of the greatest country records ever produced. But one thing, Jim, that I uh, did not like about the obits uh, about Billy Sherrill is that they omitted, I think, a really key part of his career. And that was his work with the Staple Singers when they were first signed to a major label in the mid-60s. They, they, they come aboard Epic Records. Sherrill was the producer chosen to work with them. He came to a Southside church in Chicago in 65 to record the Staple Singers live. The Selma to Montgomery march was only weeks old. Pop Staples had just written a great song called Freedom Highway about it. He debuted the song at this concert 
concert, as well as playing songs like Why Am I Treated So Bad in front of an audience that needed to hear that. Uh, Billy Sherrill was there to document it all. A great job of production. Billy Sherrill died again at age 78 in Nashville on August 4th. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and you know, Greg, today is uh, one of our producers has his birthday. We would sing to him, you and I, on the air right now, but then we would have to pay a lot of money. We have covered several times in the history of Sound Opinions the strange copyright protection tale of the song Happy Birthday to You, which every time it's in a TV show or a movie, still to this day, people have to pay to license, even though the authors are long, 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 long dead, and the roots of the tune stretch back to the late 1800s. There have been some recent legal developments. We're going to dive deep into that song now. Joining us is intellectual property attorney Jeffrey Brown. He's from Chicago. Jeff, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hey, thanks very much. Delighted to join you this morning. All right, Jeff, we've got a complicated task in front of you here, one that we've actually been talking about in Sound Opinions for years because I think this whole controversy about happy birthday to you, it's sort of the exhibit A in the battle over copyright law and how some people feel it's overreached its original purpose, which was to ensure that you know, creators, I guess, are going to be properly compensated for their work. Now we've got this court case in uh, Los Angeles that is building to a crescendo here. There seems to have been a major development in the Happy Birthday to You copyright case. Explain to us where we're at right now with this case and what the implications are of, of the latest ruling. Yeah, sure. So, you know, right now, summer of 2015, this is this point in time where the parties have gone through two years of a court battle. There have been four amended complaints. Parties have gone through discovery, motions. They've been fighting about all kinds of arcane aspects of copyright law, interpretations under the 1909 Copyright Act. And we're at the point when the judge is about to rule on their motions. And these are dispositive motions that could ultimately decide the case. And then, late July, Warner Chapel, they produce certain materials to the plaintiffs. And these are documents that they contend were mistakenly not previously produced during discovery. And this, among is, those, this is the music publisher that claims to own the rights. Right. So Warner Chapel, they claim ownership in Happy Birthday, the most popular song in the world. And that's based on a registration with the Copyright Office that goes back to 1935. Obviously, there's millions of dollars at stake here. They're licensing this all over the place. So they're getting licensing fees when there's uh, use of the song in TV programs, movies, plays, public performance royalties for radio play, yeah. sheet music sales. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, Jeff, Greg and I have, have joked so many times about this still being in copyright. You know, 
kindergarten classes the world over are violating copyright <laughs> every time they sing that to hand out the cupcakes. Well, that that's where this actually came from. You know, the, the one of the original authors of the song, one of the sisters was a kindergarten teacher in Kentucky, and the song started out as the song called "Good Morning to All," and it was "Good Morning." Dear students, and you know the tune, but it's you know what we now call Happy Birthday. Now we're talking about a song that was written in the 19th century, right? Yeah, so 1893 is when we think it was first written. At least that's the point in time where there's the first copyright on Good Morning to All. The sisters go ahead, they assign their rights to a publishing company in exchange for 10% of the retail sales of the manuscript. At that point in time, we're talking sheet music sales. That's what they were going to make some money on. And so then this, uh, the publisher goes out, secures a copyright registration for a book that's called Song Stories for the Kindergarten. And under the copyright law that was in place at that time, provided the copyright owner complied with the formalities that were in place, they'd have a term of copyright of 28 years. So that 1893 copyright would run in 1921, and they didn't <laughs> renew it, the copyright. So the original music and lyrics to Good Morning to All actually went into the public domain no later than 1921, which is, uh, I guess, 14 years before the, the registration that Warner Chapel is going to rely on. Now, now the reason that uh, this is such a controversy and that, you know, I called it Exhibit A up at the top is that here, the, the, the authors, the writers of this song, uh, the school teacher and her sister, are long since gone. And yet here, a publisher is still collecting $2 million a year, it's estimated, That's uh, right. whenever this song is used. And part of the, uh, the bone of contention for a lot of people is this Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998. And under that law... The song would remain under protection through 2030. <laughs> that's right. In the, in the United States, it would be uh, 2030, and that's what Warner Chapel's relying on. All right, so what exactly happened in July, Jeff? Okay, so Ju- July of this year, we have um, Warner Chapel producing to the plaintiffs in the case some documents that they contend were mistakenly not previously produced. And among those, there's this PDF from the 15th edition of the Everyday Songbook. That's published in 1927, and it contains the song and lyrics, Good Morning and Birthday Song. And that song has the happy birthday lyrics. And 1927 is eight years before the 1935 registration upon which Warner Chapel is relying. And curiously, in that PDF, there's one line in what is otherwise a clear PDF that's blurred, and it's text right below the song lyrics, and turns out it's not a proper copyright notice. And so you've got the plaintiffs at that point presumably thinking, you know, I smell smoke here, and I'm guessing they say, hey, this is the 15th edition of the book. We've got to find these 14 prior editions. And they end up tracking down earlier editions, including one, it has a publication date of 1922. And lo and behold, it contains a song, Good Morning and Happy Birthday, with those familiar Happy Birthday to You lyrics as the third verse there. So they've got to be doing just a happy dance, because <laughs> any work that is published in 1922 under the old 1909 Copyright Act, assuming that every single one of the formalities was complied with, that work is in the public domain. So, 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 so they have to give all this money back that they've been collecting? 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's what the, the lawsuit certainly seeks. And whether it's all of this money or a more limited time period, um, that's what's going to be determined. So the, the actual case uh, is a class action, and it doesn't just involve a, a filmmaker who's set out to do this documentary film called Happy Birthday, but it includes um, a, a few other named plaintiffs, including a band and some, some other filmmakers. But it also purports to be on behalf of all folks who took a license to the the song from Warner Chapel since uh, 2009. And so if the judge rules in their favor and grants the relief that they sought, there'd be money coming back to those to those individuals who took a license. And to the extent that Warner Chapel knew that they didn't have the rights to be able to, to grant these licenses, I think you're going to see people that had previously sought uh, a license or obtained a license, paid for a license from Warner Chapel saying, hey, it's time to get a refund here. And so where do we stand now, Jeff, with this case? Okay, so I think the most likely outcome is that there will be a determination that this work is in the public domain. I think if that's the case, you're likely to hear a lot more TV shows, movies, commercials, birthday knickknacks. You know, this song is on... uh, birthday cake plates, it's in greeting cards. It's yeah, those singing be... cards, that's what I yeah. was just thinking I mean, it, it, You're going to see a lot more of that because people will be able to use it without paying a license fee. So, Jeff, what would, what would a ruling here mean for the rest of the music community? You know, what I see in, in the, the music industry is that licensees are going to press for provisions in their contracts with publishers that specifically provide for a refund if a work is determined to have been in the public domain. They're going to want reps and warranties that it's not, and people are just going to be a, a little more skittish about this. So, you know, this will be the, the issue of the moment, and I think will probably change the way that the, the paper looks when people are doing deals. I'm almost sorry to lose Happy Birthday because when Greg and I would speak about copyright issues, I mean, that, it was just the best example of the silliness of, of permanent extensions of copyright. One of the other things that we got to feel sad about is it the, the unintended consequences here. You know, all those quirky avoid-the-license-fee birthday songs that chain restaurants used to use. <laughs> you know, they'd have their wait staff With out the there clapping, doing the, right? the clapping song. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and that's Benny Hanna. If they get rid of that birthday clapping song, I am not going to be happy. Jeffrey Brown is an intellectual property attorney with the firm of Michael Best and Friedrich. Jeff, thanks for being on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Delayed I could join you. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, it's time for the rock doctors to hang up their shingle. We'll help a listener in a musical slump. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and it's time to hang up the shingle at the Rock Doctors Clinic. That is right, Dr. Cott. If you are new to the Rock Doctors segment, perhaps we weren't in your medical plan before, (laughs) Rock Doctors is where we try to help people stay musically healthy. Some people have had musical allergies. Maybe we're just given a new injection of some music. You know, that's the case with our next patient, Jim. Jessica from Montreal. Jessica wrote to us with a bad case of musical malaise and lyric lethargy. She's disenchanted with the music she's been hearing on the radio and needs our prescription to heal the beat fatigue. Greg's a virus that spreads, so let's get to this stat. We'll find out about Jessica's background, hear what she's struggling with, and hopefully offer a prescription. She's on the line now. Jessica, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hi. It's a pleasure. Oh, well, we're happy to have you. (laughs) I see from the nurse's note to me that you're married to a rock DJ who's a former electronic musician. Is part of you coming to the Rock Doctors today wanting to have music in your life that isn't coming from your significant other? Well, suffice to say, we do a lot of musical discovering together. And so I I think, you know, it's, it's really just made me more hungry for more types of music. So where do you primarily turn, uh, you and your husband, for your musical discoveries? Well, we're, we're huge disciples of WFMU. Like, I cannot oh, yeah. even begin to tell you how much WFMU has impacted both our musical lives and also the, uh, the WFMU's Rock and Soul Ichiban, which is this hidden gem that a lot of people don't know about, but we get so much good rock and roll from that, too. So listen, let's dig a little deeper into this, into rock, okay? Uh, FMU, you're listening to that regularly. Your husband is a rock DJ. For people who don't know what that means, if you say FMU, it means eclectic. Yes. She's got wide tastes. So explain to us your tastes specifically in rock music. What is it that you respond to? What is it that you like to hear? I just, you know, I, I respond most to the energy of rock and roll. I love the ugly beats out of Austin, Texas. I think they made my favorite record of 2014 with Brand New Day. I I love that album so much. I want to believe that the musicians that I'm listening to are playing for their lives. That sounds great. I mean, it sounds to me like you don't really need us because you've already got some pretty good ideas about what's great. You know, far be it from us to pass up a musical Medicare payday. <laughs> but uh, compared to some of the people in this office, you sound pretty healthy. Yeah. So what's going on? What what exactly is ailing you, Jessica? You must know better than me. I mean, I, I tune into you guys every week. I, uh, I I learn from you guys as much as I do from FMU. After you put to Peter Schilling on your Desert Island jukebox, I just listened to that song for like three days straight. Oh, thank you very much. So thanks for that. <laughs> like there's there's something out there that that I must be missing. An expert's opinion would be very enlightening. That's a huge compliment to us and we appreciate that very much. Hopefully we can help you out. All right, let's talk a little bit more about current music that is that's turning you off. What is it that you don't like to hear? Oh, it's just that that awful trend in music right now that was spearheaded by what what I like to refer to as of monsters and lumineers and and sons, <laughs> which is just that the 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 glut of hey-ho choruses 
overused, you know, banjo and mandolin, and just it's 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 like this this next level of twee. And at, you know, at first it was very sweet, but now it's it's gotten you know overused and insincere, and makes me want to throw my radio out the window. Thankfully, I don't listen to a lot of radio that plays those songs. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, but it's just it, it, the insincerity of it at this point is just I find it really offensive. And everything it just all sounds the same. I also see a note on your chart that you are violently allergic to quote whining girl rockers. Yes. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I mean, I think uh, when I spoke to your intern, Emily, um, I was she helped me out because I couldn't remember the name of the girl from the Moldy Peaches. But that, I think, what was her name? Kim uh, Dawson. Kim Yadonson. That's her, yes, that's the prime example. It just, it grates on my nerves. It's the, <laughs> it's the upspeak of, of music. We both have shiny, happy fits of rage. You want more fans, I want more stage. I don't see what anyone can see in anyone else. Now, the other thing that jumps out in our notes from our intern slash nurse is that we get a sense that you like mixing of genres. Like, there's a sense of innovation, pushing the music forward. You don't want to just stick to one sound, but you like artists who are innovating within their genre. I like musicians who are students of music, if not technically, then spiritually. They're, they're, they're always doing their homework, and they're always trying to find new and interesting ways of, of making the music that they love. Wow, so you've given us a lot to work with. <laughs> I, I think you've articulated what it is you want to hear very well. I feel a little daunted, Mr. DeRigatis, I, I think we've, got a, we've clearly got a very sophisticated patient uh, Jessica here. should be a rock critic. Yeah. I don't know why we know. What. That's not the first time I've been told that. <laughs> this is not like intensive first aid. It's not the big leap across the Grand Canyon. It's more like, okay, here's another step you could take because you're yeah. already heading in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. You're almost there. The artist I'm going to recommend to you is named Michael Cronin. He is a guitar player, multi-instrumentalist, really. Probably best known for his work with Ty Siegel. I love Ty Siegel. We're a step further in the right direction here. <laughs> so he was in Siegel's band, and as you know, a lot of these San Francisco underground garage slash punk rockers, they make a lot of records. Cronin is no exception. He has been working with a number of bands over the last few years, and he's made three solo records himself. The one thing I thought jumps out at me about Cronin's music that I thought might appeal to you is the, your idea that you want rock music, but you want it to say something more. You want it to innovate. You want it to move forward. Let's not just repeat what's been done, but let's keep pushing forward with this basic template, you know, guitar, drums, bass. That works pretty well, but let's keep pushing it forward. Cronin, I think, does that. Yeah, he's one of the few guys who's playing in the underground scene, one of the few rock rockers, period, who's uh, got a Bachelor of Fine Arts in music. He earned that from uh, the California Institute of the Arts. And it's not like he, he, he sticks that in your face. It's not like he says, oh, look, look at how pretentious 
I can make my recordings. But he uses it in very skillful ways on his records. As I said, multi-instrumentalist, you're going to hear some, some strings, you're going to hear some piano, but you're also going to hear that core of bass, drums, and guitar. So there's a pop element here, a rock element, and I think there's a, a mixing and matching of styles. Now, Cronin's put out three records. He just put out one this year, which is pretty good. But I'm, the one I'm going to recommend is the one he put out in 2013, MC2, Michael Cronin, the second album. And that is the one where I really think he puts it all together. He basically does these records himself. I think the mixing and matching of styles is is superb on this record. Songs are there, but the innovation is there as well. That's the record I'm going to recommend for you. Oh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. Now it's got to sound good, you know, Such an when you actually put patient. it between the headphones. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're allowed to, to completely, I mean, most patients do. It's like, I don't know what you guys are thinking. We should sue you for malpractice, but. Okay, so I was keying in on another note that Nurse Emily made on your chart. Godhead trio as a young woman, Beatles, Dylan, Phil Oaks. And I was thinking about uh, singer-songwriters, but keeping in mind that you love this kind of diversity and you got your fondness for the rock rhythm, I'm going to recommend a young Australian singer-songwriter, Fraser Gorman. I've really been struck by his debut album. Uh, it's called Book of Love. He's a pal of Courtney Barnett. Now, you say you listen to the show. You might know that uh, Greg and I, uh, high on the list of contenders for Album of the Year, uh, is this recent album by Courtney Barnett. We just love it. I really enjoyed it. her record, yeah. Oh, there you go. So this guy's a buddy. Uh, he, She loved him so much, she signed him to her label early on and has been uh, pushing him forward. But he's got an interesting story. He became a, a serious music student at age 12 because he had a serious stuttering problem. And the only way he could get over stuttering was to sing. And his mom encouraged him to do this. And then he said, you know, singing without a guitar in your hand is kind of dumb. So he picked up guitar and he started playing out at age 15. Uh, he saw Justin Towns Earl on tour in Australia early on, and he thought, this guy's amazing. I love him. And he I is amazing. I, I, I love him, too. I know you like your Roots Rock. <laughs> but this is, remember, this is Roots Rock from a 20, uh, 22-year-old kid who grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne on what they call in Australia the surf coast, surrounded by jocks, hated them, didn't fit in, awkward he's got hair like carrot top it sort of stands on top of it. so you have this awkward kid in love with americana delivering it with a totally out of left field take and as you said you like musicians playing for their lives i think he means it you know when you get this album in particular start with the song broken hands i think he's talking about the, the issues we all have when we're 21, 22, and he's doing it in a humorous uh, way, but he's doing it with a lot of musical sophistication for somebody so young. Oh, wow. I'm so excited, you guys. This all sounds fantastic. All well, right. Good. Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if yeah. you change your tune by next week, yes. you know, uh, when you've taken your medicine and get back to us. But we will check in again next week. Amazing. Okay, Dr. Cott, through the magic of radio, it is a week later, and it is time to check back with our outpatient Jessica in Montreal. Hi. Jessica, how are you? I'm fine, guys. How are you? We're excellent. So last week we prescribed some medicine for you, and now you're going to give some medicine back to us. 
Oh, I've been looking forward to it. <laughs> How did we do on our prescriptions? I suggested the Michael Cronin record, MC2. What did you think? Well, is it weird to say that he made me feel young again? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's where you specialize in that. That's a compliment. I'll take that. Do I I'm only 30, but while I was listening to this record, like that sort of headiness of my mid-20s and those years of living out loud came flooding back to me, and it was actually quite emotional. Wow. <laughs> That's great. The years of living out loud. She's a better rock critic than us, Greg. I think she's just testing us to see if we know anything at all. <laughs> I think I just really wanted to talk to people who are on my level. Well, there you go. All the way from <laughs> Montreal. You're welcome anytime, Jessica. Wonderful. What was it about the Michael Cronin record that made you feel this way? What I was really first struck by was just how melodic his songwriting is. And I know he's rooted more in psychedelic rock. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of reading about his first record and how it was more fuzzed out and, and, and a bit sort of rowdier sounding than this, this sophomore record. But I feel like his psychedelic sensibilities were such an asset to him on this record because it gave the production this sort of dirty quality mm -hmm. that kept him from sounding too much like I'm going to say the new pornographers, because the songwriting is very similar to theirs, I found. Mm -hmm. And pretty songwriting too often gets a pretty treatment. So to me, it sounded really, really fresh. Did you find that it was working for you lyrically at all, or was it mostly like just the sonic combinations that were working? I, I, I think it impacted me most sonically. It was just so beautifully made that it was impossible to ignore. But I did, I did like it lyrically. I mean, I didn't find myself sort of wrinkling my nose at his lyrics at all. And I didn't find the lyrics distracting. Mm -hmm. So I was quite impressed by the whole package. I liked it so much that I felt like it's almost sort of people toss the word perfect around a little too much, but it was one of those records where you don't not like any of the tracks. So you were fine with the strings and some of those piano melodies, so some of it's kind of classical chamber pop type stuff m mixed in with the garage rock. That's right, and I noticed on Am I Wrong, the piano's a little bit discordant, and, and I thought that was really very charming. He uses various instrumentation very deftly, I found. Jessica, give us one other song that you loved on that Michael Cronin record. I really loved I'm Done Running From You. Mm -hmm. That just stuck with me. I love the guitar on it. That's a sort of driving guitar. And the, the sentiment behind it, 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 it was kind of existential, but it was also <laughs> like I'm going to open myself up to this person. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, that's a very sort of universal sentiment, and I found it very endearing. It's thrilling to hear people loving music to the point that you do. And I hope this record still has that same resonance for you, you know, six months from now. 
Oh, Jessica's oh. a fan. Yeah. She's all right. So Dr. Cott is probably a little more conservative than me, Jessica. I tend to go with the more experimental treatments. He was focusing in, I think, on your love of melody, but also driving rhythm. I ignored the rhythm part because you said you came of age with Dylan and Phil Oaks. So I sent you a singer-songwriter from Australia, close pal of Courtney Barnett, who Greg and I love, Fraser A. Gorman, his debut album. What did you think? Well, as soon as I heard him sing, country music to me sounds like rock and roll. That that was it. I was just like, that's what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> you got <laughs> you know, that countryside, right? Oh, he was just an instant sell for me. I mean, I found his style is this perfect cocktail of language and urgent, and his voice is just gorgeously earnest, which is like that. That was such a deal maker for me. I got no soul, cause country music sounds to me like rock and roll. I was a little worried because we were having a lot of fun during our first appointment making fun of the whiny girl rock of Kim Yaw Dawson. You don't like <laughs> whining, and there's a little bit hard on sleeve with young Frazier. He's only 22, 23, mm-hmm. but that doesn't bother you. He does it right. No, because it's his voice is assured, but just... That little bit of hesitant that makes it relatable. Yeah, he's human. And, he's human. Oh, yeah, very human. And I, I really had a, a reaction to him that there's something special about this kid. And he clearly has such an artistically rich and interesting road ahead of him. Give me a track that stood out for you and what you liked about it. We're All All Right was beautiful. And it, and it reminded me of there's this essay that Nick Hornby wrote where he says that sometimes you, you can hear the presence of God on a song. Mm. And to me, when the horns come in on We're All Alright, that's an instance for me. Like, there is something divine about it. We're all there we're all all right <laughs> we're all all right 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 don't you think see, i just i just thought of like campfires and i mean when when i listened to both of these records i was in my kitchen with my husband and it was the hottest night of the year so far and we were just sitting with the air conditioning off and all the doors open mm-hmm. and we were just sort of basking in the whole moment <laughs> yes and also, I found it very thoughtful of Fraser Gorman to begin and end this record on soft notes, different soft notes, but soft notes nonetheless. So little birds sing, singing to me, singing sweetly on my way down. That's a heck of a debut. So yes, it sounds like you came in for just a health checkup. We gave you some vitamin shots. You're enthused now. Are you going to go buy like 10 more albums this week? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Now, now, did your husband, the DJ, was he on board with both of these picks? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was giving me that look he gives me when we hear really good music for the first time and just sort of like shaking his head. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's got a few new songs to play at work this week. So awesome. he thanks you for that. <laughs> Her and her husband got to just start a podcast. I don't know what they're coming to. Them. Really? What are you waiting around for, Jessica? Come on. You need to get on the radio. You need to broadcast these opinions worldwide. There's no doubt about it. Oh, you guys don't need competition. Now, Jessica, we're glad we did really well by you and thrilled that the prescriptions took so well. Thanks for being our patient on Sound Opinions. Oh, thank you guys. 
If you'd like to make an appointment with the Rock Doctors or you'd like to nominate someone you think is in need of urgent musical medicine, fill out a patient form at soundopinions.org. And what would you prescribe to Jessica or someone who needs a fresh dose of musical sincerity? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, a review of the new album from Dr. Dre and Jim Puts a Quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is Dr. Dre with a track called Talk About It from the new album Compton, the third Dr. Dre studio album, the first in 15 years. Andre Young, that's what he was known as back in L.A. in the 80s before he became Dr. Dre. He was one of the architects of gangster rap and West Coast hip-hop in the late 80s and early 90s. It's a simpler style, a more danceable style, a style that became huge pop music, primarily because of the innovations that Dre brought to it as a producer. He was working with N.W.A. for a number of those years, and this group really changed the way people thought about black culture, especially on the West Coast gang culture. His 1992 solo debut, The Chronic, was a multi-million seller. The very next year, he produced the debut album by his death row label mate Snoop Dogg. That went quadruple platinum. And by this point, Dr. Dre was probably the single most influential figure in hip-hop. In 1996, he left Death Row and established his own label, Aftermath Entertainment. But I think his primary successes during this year have been signing and developing artists like Eminem, Exhibit, 50 Cent, The Game, and Kendrick Lamar. Now... He's back at it again. He'd been working on a new album called Detox for much of those 15 years. It's legendary, and I've heard as many as 300 tracks were in consideration for that album. But in the last year, he had a change of heart. He decided to scrap the whole thing and start over again. Here's the end result, Compton. We're going to play a track from it before we review it. Here's a track called Deep Water with his protege, Kendrick Lamar, on it from Dr. Dre on Sound Opinions. I think you talking about respect, I gave you the utmost. The utmost. Would you look over Picasso's shoulder and tell him about his brush strokes? Them opinions I don't trust those. I apologize, the city made it so cutthroat. Every hood love me, but it started on one coast. Could've stopped in 86, but I knew that you would want more. I'm on a throne in a place I won't go. Don't get it up. And away from home. Away from home. 
I think it's time to take this to the deep water. Yeah, down in the Pacific. Where the sharks at? Down in the deep water. Listen, listen, listen. Are you swimming in the air flow? Running, drowning the specifics. Always going overboard. Used to be my kid flow. Now you're sleeping with the mall. Fishes. Fish with the bitches. Won't let up until they all wet up. What? That is Deep Water featuring uh, Kendrick Lamar. It's interesting, Greg, that Lamar appears on Dre's Compton because Lamar is doing the sort of incendiary lyrically and incredibly adventurous musically sort of thing that, that, that N.W.A. did in 88 with Straight Outta Compton. He is a greater artist today than Dr. Dre. I've got two problems with Andre Young. I always have. Number one, I think he's overrated as a producer. He and Rick Rubin are the most overrated producers from the 80s and 90s. He accomplished a lot with the first N.W.A. album. We could have a good long fight about Dre musically. There is no debate about Lyrically, he is now a 50-year-old billionaire corporate success story. And the amount of misogyny on this album, Greg, Medicine Man, with his protege Eminem, has the single most vile lyric that Marshall Mathers has ever uttered in his career. And that's saying something. Eminem is 42 years old. He's a father. And for him to make light of rape the way he does, you know, the fact that Dre puts his name on this and that Apple gives it away for free and that the royalties are going to charity. You know, I think this is unconscionable smut, not rising to the level of art. It takes away from the smarter political songs, the Kendrick Lamar in particular, and to some degree King Mez bring to this album. I can't understand why Dre put his name on this. It just makes me sick to my stomach. It's a trash it record. Well, I can understand why he put his name on it. I actually think he's he's done a lot of work here that uh, was surprisingly good. I was not expecting an album to sound as fresh and contemporary as, as this one. I think uh, scrapping the detox album was probably a good idea. Clearly, he was inspired by the work of Kendrick Lamar, people like that. One thing, you know, he's got the guest stars on here, Kendrick, Snoop, Eminem, The Game, Ice Cube, etc. But the key to the record is he's working with these young guys, King Mez and Justice, who share songwriting credits on just about every track here. Dre co-produced every song, but I think it's notable that he didn't do it all himself. He really parceled it out. It's, a, it's an album about this community. So in that respect, he has re-entered the conversation as a relevant contemporary figure. I disagree with you completely about his production. He was able to get better musicians, better equipment, and, and made really sophisticated sounding pop records. But what about records. Loose Cannons? What about Medicine Man? What about returning to well, this hatred toward women that was despicable and old and played out the, in 1991? Th- this is part two of my conversation here, is that I go back to the 2001 record, and that, that record was already played out. It was rife with the kind of misogyny you're talking about, the sexism here. By comparison, this is quite a bit watered down, and yet 
it is inexcusable for an artist of his stature and his wealth. You would think he was grown up, but a track like Loose Cannons is horrifying. It is it is stomach churning. I listened to it and I couldn't believe it was on this record. And it it's a real negative mark on a record that I thought was a great way for Dre to reintroduce himself to a new audience. Instead, he leaves with this impression like he still hasn't grown up. There's some really vile tracks on here, but I think you have to look at it in total, and I think there's some really brilliant tracks. I think that Lamar track that we played is is great work. It's among the greatest things that Dre has ever been involved in, so I'm going to have to give it a try-it rating. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island, drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox, and play a track we cannot live without. Jim, it's your turn this week. Greg, I told the best part of this story up top of the show about digging out this 1985 mixtape for a listener who wanted to give a gift. I'm surprised. Some of the songs I have no recollection of (laughs) whatsoever, and some of the songs I'd forgotten how great they were. I had two tunes on this 85 mix by a band called Breaking Circus. This was a group that formed in Chicago during that really fertile mid-'80s period of punk rock, arc punk that gave us Naked Ray Gun and Big Black. And I think Breaking Circus was right in the middle of those two bands, formed by a guy named Steve Bjorklund. He had the Roland TR-606 drum machine that Big Black made famous, but he had these incredible pop hooks that Naked Ray Gun would bring to punk rock. This is a song that splits the difference, I think, from their very first EP, The Very Long Fuse. They would go on to make a full album and another EP, but this is the record. Check this record out if you if you can find it. It's out of print. It's hard to find. Steve Bjorklund bringing great pop sensibility to this weird tale of a third world athlete wrestled to the ground by security during what one presumes is the Olympics. They find a knife on him and they beat him. And he says the only English words he knows, I'll sue you. <laughs> it's just what a weird tale, but what a great hook. Bjorklund would move to Minneapolis and go on to be a part of the underground music scene there in different guises through the years. The drummer, who later replaced the drum machine in Breaking Circus, a guy named Todd Trainer, would go on to be a member of Shellac Mm -hmm. to this day. There's a little-known footnote from uh, 1985 that I wouldn't have remembered without this mixtape. Breaking Circus, Knife in the Marathon.
That is Breaking Circus from 1985, a tune called Knife in the Marathon, my Desert Island jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to talk about one of the great bands of all time, the Isley Brothers, in a conversation with the great Ernie Isley. Man, that sounds great. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Emily Espinel. Hello, who's that speaking, please? I'm on a party line, wondering all the time Who's on the other end? Is she big, is she small? Is she a she at all? Who's on my party line? On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New Messages. Hi, my name is Fred Mershmer from Brooklyn, New York. I was listening to Greg's and Jim's show where he was interviewing Stephen Witt about his book on music piracy. When asked if he thought file sharing was morally wrong, he stated that it was sort of a gray area and it didn't feel that way at the time. It was also stated by one of the, you guys that CD prices being 18.99 at the time, it almost sort of legitimized it. I just looked up online and Mr. Witt's book is listed at 27.95. I'm kind of curious if he's willing to put his book digitally online so it could be downloaded by anybody, so therefore he'd forego his revenue for the time he put in writing the book and researching it. Bye. Hey, guys, it's Eric up in the Hudson River Valley in New York. Just listen to your television and music show. To me, the most egregious use of music in a commercial has got to be Lou Reed. They used the instrumental track to walk on the wild side, which was always one of my very favorite songs. and so subversive and so terrific, and it shows all the sort of New York City gritty scenes, and then at the end of the commercial, you see Lou Reed sitting on a scooter, a Honda scooter, and he says, Hey, don't settle for walking. Implying, of course, that we should scoot on the wild side. I've never got over it, still can't get over it. If you've never seen it, you can't unsee it, but you can certainly Google Lou Reed scooter and find it right away. Anyway, thanks. Keep up the great work, guys. Bye-bye. Jim and Greg, this is Chris Stillwell calling from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I love your show, and I especially loved this past week's episode of Rock and Television. But ah, how did you miss Northern Exposure? The best show ever when it comes to music and television. You can get an entire musical education just watching that show, from Lionel Hampton to Daniel Lanois and Stan Getz to Iris Dement. To this day, I cannot hear Proko Harms' Whiter Shade of Pale without seeing a coffin flying through the air, breaking apart as it crashes into a lake. And all of this brought to you by a DJ from Wheeling, West Virginia. What more could you ask for on television? Thanks, guys. Cue up the good work. Hey, hi, it's Anne from San Francisco. I love the show. Um, and what I thought of was Broadwalk Empire, Elvis Costello singing It Had to Be You, right down to Patti Smith singing I Ain't Got Nobody. I-
Nobody cares for me. It really teaches people about music from the 20s. Okay, thanks. Great show. Bye-bye. Hey, guys, this is MC from Chicago. In terms of music and television, the one thing I think it's short shrift is the role that the Adams Family played in pop culture. Nobody's ever heard the harpsichords until Alert started playing it. And yet afterwards, and everywhere from, you know, Linda Ronstadt and different drum and the Stones and Dandelion and Six and the Hole by the Beatles, I mean, it started showing up everywhere. And so, to not mention Vic Muzzy and, and the cheesy music on the, and the Adams Family is, is paying a short trip because its impact on popular culture was pretty amazing. Great show, guys. Keep up the good work. See ya. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.